Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, we are pugcasting on a uh, August day that's hot outside. And uh, it's been hot for a while, and that's why we're in the main part of the pub. Uh, one of these days, when it cools down again, and they don't, and you don't need to have air conditioning to, to stay sane, we'll get back into the back room where it's a little quieter. But uh, we're glad you're with us, and uh, as always, uh, if I haven't already mentioned it, we are at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. You know, one of the things we've been really pleased to, to learn is that there are a whole lot more people out there who listen to the show than we had uh, ever anticipated doing so. We're up to about 2,000 uh, regular listeners to the, to the podcast, and, and we're kind of just astounded. <laughs> but uh, after all, we have such, such high sort of production values. <laughs> you know, you know. So anyway, uh, the, uh, other, one of the things that, that also has caught us by surprise is there are some people who have, without our even prompting them or even really fully understanding how to do it, there are people who have been pledging to the program. We have financial supporters now. And so uh, it occurred to us that perhaps some other people would want to do that too, and uh, it would be appreciated. Uh, we don't earn anything from this, but there are costs associated with having the, the, the podcast. And so uh, it's, we're really grateful for folks uh, who have already made a commitment to us. And uh, these commitments are monthly commitments, so this is like an indefinite commitment these folks have made to us. And if you'd like to do that, I've been given a little blurb by the folks over at the FLF Network, uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, to, to read for you. And, uh, and what you have here is uh, this, uh, this statement. We encourage you to join the Fight, Laugh, uh, Feast Club and uh, become a member. This is a great way to support what we are doing. And don't forget to use the code PUGCAST when you sign up. Club members get access to special club content, merchandise, and more. <laughs> and by the way, there is actually PugCast merchandise now. Our mug, our Pug mug is available. And again, this wasn't our idea. These, this was prompted by the uh, uh, folks over there at the, at the FLA Network, and we just said, sure, hey, we'll go along with this, and we're glad for it. If it were our idea, it would be a beer stein. <laughs> I, I think that may be in the offering, though. <laughs> But uh, so, uh, on short notice, we, we work something up, and so you can have a pug mug uh, of your very own. Anyway, enough, enough of the preliminaries. It's time to introduce uh, folks, and we have a special guest today, and uh, we'll let him introduce himself. But let's start with, with you, Glenn. Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, among other things. Great. And Ray. My name is Ray Pinoy. I'm an adjunct professor at Albertus Magnus and Sacred Heart University, and also a um, one of the pastors at Walnut Hill Community Church. We have four locations in, in Connecticut. And I, I actually thought I had to do this in order to get a pug mug, uh, but, uh, but now I'm finding I can, there's other ways. <laughs> yeah, there are things we don't tell our guests ahead of time. <laughs> Well, it's great to have you, Ray. I know you and Glenn have known each other for a little while. This is, you know, we've, we've met through uh, one of my, uh, my, my parishioners, mm -hmm. and he's taking a course with you, or did take a course with you, and he really enjoyed it. And, uh, and he had a book that he shared with me that we're going to talk about in another podcast, uh, so I won't go there at the moment. But uh, anyway, uh, it's your day, Glenn, so what are we talking about today? 
Well, I thought that. Oh, by the way, we, we, we ought to tell people where Tom is. There are probably people out there. What, what about Tom? Tom is on vacation. And Tom is uh, with his wife driving across Pennsylvania and down into Virginia. And, uh, and then he's going to be going up into the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And so he's just all over the place, enjoying himself. Uh, I don't know if that's possible without you and me, Glenn, but he's enjoying himself uh, <laughs> as much as he can without us. Right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, sorry to interrupt, Glenn. I just okay. thought that people might want to know. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to return to a topic that we talked about actually quite a while ago in some of our early podcasts, and that's the idea of Christian Platonism. Okay. Now, to a lot of people out there in the Reformed world, Christian Platonism is a contradiction in terms. It goes well <laughs> beyond oxymoron into complete contradiction. Right, I've met and, these people. Yeah, and if you read people like Francis Schaeffer and uh, a number of other people in that circle, now I've got a lot of respect for Schaeffer, but he really gets a little confused on some points here. Yeah. Um, basically, the, the problem is that he confuses Platonism with Gnosticism. Right. Okay. And what, what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, the way Schaefer understands Platonism uh, is that it says that the non-physical world, the spiritual world, is the only thing that really matters. It's, it's superior to the physical world. Uh, everything in the physical world is basically bad, um, and you, you really just need to focus on the spirit. Mm -hmm. And Schaefer argues that this is a sub-Christian idea. He is absolutely correct about that. But in his association of that with Platonism and anybody who has anything good to say about Plato, he makes a pretty serious mistake. Right, and there are some, some really interesting people who had nice things to say about Plato, like Augustine and Calvin and so forth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, the, essentially where you go with, with uh, if you follow that line of reasoning is you would have to argue that someone like Thomas Aquinas had a sub-Christian worldview. Right, right. And I don't think anybody can actually read Aquinas and come to that kind of a conclusion. Right. So, so the question is, you know, when we talk about Christian Platonism, what do we mean? And to get to that, what I want to do is go back to Plato himself and some of Plato's ideas. See, this would be a, a great thing for people to do, to actually read Plato. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, uh, hint, you might need a guidebook to help you through it. Because sure, it's not, sure. he, Plato, Plato in some ways is kind of like Nietzsche. He writes in images right, right. and things like that. It's right. not always the easiest thing to get where he's going. Okay. Right. Okay. But the the thing that that Plato does is, I would argue, Plato is the most important philosopher in the ancient world. Yeah. Definitely. Much more important than Aristotle right. in in the cultural context within right. the ancient world. Everybody basically followed Plato, and I would argue that's because of what Plato did, essentially, is articulate in a relatively clear philosophical way what people already believed. Right. That's the best way to become a thought leader, figure out what people are thinking and then say it before anybody else does. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that, that's really what Plato did. And 
in, in Plato's vision of the world, it, it begins as classical philosophy always does. It begins with metaphysics. Mm -hmm. It begins with the question, what's real? Because if you don't know what's real, you can't really move on to anything else. It's really foundational. So Plato, Plato was dealing with a number of problems out there. One of the basic questions in metaphysics is the problem of universals, or the problem of universals in particulars, or the problem of the one and the many. It goes by a lot of different names. Right, right. And maybe the best way to think about this is, um, I want. while well, we're in New England, I want you to think about a sugar maple tree. Mm. Okay. Yep. Now, Think about the leaves on this tree. We're in midsummer, the, the tree's in, in, in full bloom. Um, every one of the leaves on that tree is different from all of the other leaves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're slightly different shapes, slightly different size, slightly different color, different vein patterns, all of these kinds of things. Yet all of these leaves are still a leaf. Right. Now, the question is, how can we have all of these objects that are all different from each other and use one word like leaf to unite them, to, to describe the whole lot. And oh, by the way, if we go from a sugar maple to a red maple, if we go from a maple to an oak to a rose bush to whatever, all of these things, they're all radically different. They don't look anything like each other. And yet we still use the one word leaf to describe the whole right. set. Right. Now there are essentially two ways of solving the problem. This is oversimplified, but basically, there are two ways that you can go about solving the problem of the relationship of the one, the leaf, with the many leaves. Now, now let me just interject here. At this point, some of our less sort of cerebral sort of people who, who are begging for application and what makes think, you know, this relevant at this point are like zoning out. Okay. This is a very critical thing in your life, listener. Yeah. The and whole we'll LGBT get... thing is right at this moment on the line. Right. So. And uh, and we'll get uh, to be honest with you, I've been sort of setting you up. Oh, I do, okay. this, so. this is this is what I do in class. When when you are talking about leaves, this question is really kind of trivial. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. What happens, though, if you ask the question, is there a such thing as human nature? Right. Is there a such thing as universal human rights? Yeah. You know, these kinds of questions fundamentally are anchored in this issue of what's the relationship of the one and the many. Yep. Now, there are two basic ways you can answer the question. One of them is you can look at all the different leaves out there and pull out of them a set of characteristics that you're then going to use to define a leaf. Okay. That's what Aristotle does. Right. He uses a process he calls abstraction, where he abstracts out of the individual items in the class the characteristics of the universal. So the universal does exist, but it's got a secondary existence derived from the particulars, derived from the individual right. things out there. The other way of doing it is the one that was the dominant view in the ancient world and the one that Plato advocated. He said, look, the fact of the matter is you can't make the individual leaf the ground of being. You can't make that the thing that's most fundamental because that leaf started as a bud mm -hmm. and then it grew and it changed shape and all that kind of thing and eventually it's going to die. It's going to change color, it's going to die, it's going to fall off the tree and it's going to turn into dirt. Right. So if this thing is constantly changing, how can it possibly be the ground of reality? Mm -hmm. The thing that underlies reality has to be something that's constant. And in Plato's thinking, the only thing that is constant is the world of ideas. Right. 
Those are the things that can be unchanging. So there's this idea of the leaf, capital L. It's, called, they, it's sometimes called a form or an archetype. Now, one of the things, that, too, that happens when people are introduced to this, because, Ray, you've taught this stuff, I've mm -hmm. taught this stuff, is uh, for most folks, the, the, the word idea is, is entirely sort of uh, restricted to what goes on inside your head or my, my head. There's no external reality. That's not what we're talking about, though, right? Right. No, this is, this is something that, if, if you want to put it in Christian terms, this is an idea that exists in the mind of God. Right, right. Okay. Now, of course, Pl Plato, the question is, is Plato didn't put it that way, or the observation is Plato didn't put it that way? No, he, he believed that these uh, ideas, these forms, these archetypes had actual reality. Yeah. but in a non-physical world. Right. Now, the reason I bring that up is, is oftentimes people who have objections to this, this doctrine, uh, they have a very restrictive and, and sort of limiting under, uh, sort of way of thinking about Platonism. Mm -hmm. Like when we think about Platonism, we're thinking about a, a, a tradition. Mm -hmm. It's got many, many spokesmen, and they didn't always agree on every point, and it, it, it develops. You know, we can talk about you know, early Platonism, middle Platonism, you know, Platonism after, long after Plato is dead, <laughs> that kind of thing. Neoplatonism. Yeah, that's right. So, but, but often when, when I've encountered people who have, uh, you know, raised objections to Platonism, they think everything that Plato said exhausts Platonism and everything that Plato said, when it, you know, and then there are places where as a Christian we, we would disagree. Absolutely. Uh, they would say, well, you can't be a Christian Platonist because he believed or said or... He we, believed that the universe was eternal. Right, right. And there are other things yeah. you could identify well, for too. For example. Right. So, so how, you know, what, what I'm trying to get at is, is that Platonism has uh, a breadth that perhaps maybe some of our listeners don't sure. know about. Yeah, and let, 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 me, let me take this one step further, and I'll show you a specific illustration of why this matters for us as Christians. Right. Um, Plato believed that at the root of everything that existed was a single archetype, a form, whatever you would want to call the good, it. The good. He, he called the good, the true, and the beautiful all sort of rolled into one. Right. And he actually occasionally referred to this as God, right. but frequently it was the one, uh, just the one, the, the, the universal thing that is behind all other things. And the idea is that the one, it, the analogy he uses is it, it's like he ca the one casts shadows. And those shadows cast other shadows, which cast other shadows, and so on. And now which you get take into a shadow lands, and now you know the image for the, for right. the part of the imagery. Yeah, yeah. the source of the imagery of the and, movie. And so you, you have this, this series of shadows, technically they're called emanations, right. but that, that progress down from pure idea down all the way to dirt, to inert matter. And they're getting progressively less and less refined, less pure, whatever, as you're going down this thing. It's called the hierarchy of being. Basically what it means is everything is connected to everything else in this great chain of being. So if you look at uh, classical mythology, for example, you'll constantly find beings who are turning into other beings. Right. A person is turned, Arachne is turned into a spider. Mm -hmm. Daphne, who's a nymph, is turned into a laurel tree. Narcissus, another nymph, becomes a flower. And the reason why that works in their mind is that everything is fundamentally connected. 
Right. So what they're doing is they're just moving up and down the chain. People can rise up to become demigods, you know, mm -hmm. all of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have this great chain of being. Now the thing is, the principle that governs how these emanations are produced, you've got one emanation which produces another and another and so on, the term that is used in Neoplatonism to describe that underlying principle that governs the creation of all things is the Logos. Right. Okay. So hello, when, hello. So yes. when, John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, <laughs> right. he is using right. Platonic language. Sure. Okay. Um, and as a matter of fact, St. Augustine actually makes a point of that. He says, you know, as a Neoplatonist, I knew that in the beginning was the Word. Yes. I knew that the Word was with God. I knew that the Word was God. I knew that He was in the beginning with God. I knew that all things were made by Him, and apart from Him, nothing that has been made was, has, was made. I knew that in Him was life, and I knew that this life was the light of man. What I didn't know is what came later in the Gospel of John, and the Word became flesh. Yes. That I didn't know. Right. right. You know, so, that, so this is Augustine riffing on a Gospel of John, who himself is expressing the truth of Christianity in terms that were understandable and relatable to Neoplatonists right. and to the philosophical world that he was in. Right. Now, I think it might be useful to go back, Glenn, to your uh, analogy or example of the leaf and, say, and just to kind of distinguish how is it that we know what a leaf is when we see it? Okay, there are different types of leaves. And I think that most people, most people, our, our starting assumption today would be, well, we know what a leaf is because we've, we have seen all sorts of different kinds of leaves. And we've kind of manufactured in our consciousness, in our mind, you know, uh, whether it's from walking around in the, uh, in the uh, um, in, in woods or, you know, in, in books or what have you. Oh, these are the these are the general features of what a leaf is. Mm -hmm. And so we have... You know, we have projected a kind of, uh, right, right. A, almost like a list of these are the qualities that, that make something a leaf. However, that what, what you're what you're saying, what Plato was saying, is that the the, uh, the reality, the idea of a leaf is is primary. It's first. It's it's original, and all those individual examples of a leaf share in that uh, in that. Leafiness. Ideal leafiness. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. And they participate, so, you could say. They participate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And this is a, I, the reason I bring this up is that the Apostle Paul uses the, that language of participation mm -hmm. to to describe salvation, how we you know come to have life in Christ. We participate in right. his death, his resurrection. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, uh, so with Aristotle. The universal is real, but it has a secondary existence because it's derived from the particular, which, you're right, is the way we tend to think of the world, the example you gave of how, how we, what we know what a leaf is. For Plato, it goes the other way around. The universal is what's fundamental, and the particulars have a secondary existence. They're real, but they have a secondary existence, and they are what they are because they participate in... Right. The the leaf. Now, like I said, when we're talking about leaves, this becomes really you know sort of insignificant. Although I would point out a methodological problem: if you're trying to find a set of leaves, you have to know what a leaf is before you know what's in the set. Correct. So you have to have a definition of a leaf before you find the leaf to get the abstraction out, so you can have the definition. It's that, circular. Yeah, and this gets us to Plato's epistemology and recollection. Right. So that's another episode, yeah. maybe. But that, yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, we start but, to put those things together. 
And what Plato is saying is that when we when we when we see the particulars, we are we are getting in touch with something heavenly, a we heavenly are, existence essentially. We are recognizing it. Right. Now, th again, the reason why this becomes important is if you are a realist, a follower of Aristotle, as opposed to an idealist, a follower of Plato. And most of us in America, we're common sense realists. Okay. If that's the case, here's the question. How do you know what a human being is? Do you come up with a set of characteristics that you use to define what a, person, what a human being is so you understand what your class is so that you can then come up with this idea of universal human rights or, or human nature or something like that? But isn't that exactly what the Nazis did? where they developed a scale of characteristics that the closer you fit to the scale, the more Aryan you were, and therefore the more perfectly human you were, and the further you deviated from it, the less human you were. That's fundamentally a realist approach. How do you, what group do you include to come up with your definition, uh, or, or your, your class from which you de derive right. humanity? A couple, couple things I'd interject here. Sometimes people use the, the, the term realist in the idealist sense. In other words, ideas are ultimately real mm -hmm. and material phenomena. Yeah. That would be the medieval terminology. Right. I'm going back to sort right. of classical here. Yeah. Right. And I know you, you're going to get to the, the big N nominalism eventually here. I don't want to get too far ahead of us. Yeah, so. we, we, we may get there. Um, okay. So. In, like I said, you know, we, we can look at the Gospel of John, we can look at a lot of other places in Scripture, and we can see echoes of Platonic thought there. Now, there are sharp differences between Christianity and Platonism. Sure. Uh, the big one in the Middle Ages that came up was Plato argues that the universe is eternal. Right. And, you know, we know from, uh, from the Bible that the universe had an origin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, th a lot of things in Plato occur by necessity, mm -hmm. whereas Scripture tells us that they're contingent. That is, they depend on God's will. Right. Okay. So there are a lot of things of that sort that are, that are differences. We don't want to identify Christianity with Platonism. But there are a lot of core ideas in Plato that work well enough with Scripture right. or with biblical truth that even the biblical writers can use them. You know, I, I can just give my personal experience uh, as, as a Christian in college, taking my very first uh, philosophy class, it was Greek philosophy. And I, I can remember, you know, learning about the pre-Socratics and even, you know, Socrates, but, but it seemed like when we got to Plato, all of a sudden, yes. I was home. Yes, so, oh, right, right, right. oh! I recognize this. Yeah. These are ideas right. that we are, that we're dealing with in, in the Christian thought world. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, it's been said that all, the history of philosophy is just footnotes to Plato. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Now, now, where this goes, the the interesting direction this takes in the Middle Ages. And I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here, but in the 12th century, there was a new worldview that coalesced, that emerged during this period, that I think it was R.W. Southern, a uh, great medievalist, labeled Platonic Humanism. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is it's a form of Christian Platonism that is, I think, extraordinarily powerful and one that we would be well, it would serve us well to recover a lot of these ideas. The core idea is that the world ultimately comes from God. 
um, God had an idea of what he wanted in the world, and he spoke it into existence. Words are nothing more than an expression of ideas. So when God spoke the world into existence, he was expressing the ideas that were in his mind about the world. Mm -hmm. What that means is that ultimately the world comes from God, and studying the world can therefore lead us back to God. Mm -hmm. And as a result of this thinking, you see extraordinary changes that take place in medieval culture. Uh, you see, for example, a growth, this is something we usually think of in connection with the Renaissance, but by the 13th century, there is highly realistic artwork, particularly sculpture, being produced in Northern Europe as a result of a new aesthetic that emerges out of this idea that, you know, if, if the world can lead us back to God, we can't rely on just our ideas about the world. We have to look at the world the way it really is. Mm -hmm because that's the only way where we can get access to the mind of God as expressed in the world. So you see this incredibly realistic uh, sculptures. Uh, cathedral at Naumburg in Germany uh, has just got some amazing, just breathtakingly beautiful stuff that looks like it's breathing. Right. It's, and it's mid-13th century. It's so, 200 years before Donatella. So this is paradoxically a way of affirming the world, uh, even the physical world, uh, through Platonism, right. sort of kind of a and, Platonic approach. And to take it a step further, it is also the foundation for medieval science. Because if you're going to have to, if you're going to, if you're going to get to the mind of God, you have to study the world as it really is. Which means you've got to take an empirical approach. You've got to look at it the way it really is, and you've got to think through how it works. So you're getting people like the unfortunately named Robert Grosstest. Uh, gross test can translate into English as fathead. Um, gr gr gross test argues that I gotta use that name in a book. I'm gonna I mean, a character. <laughs> There's a character. Yeah. Math is the foundation for the physical world. He believes that you need to mathematize it. You need to study it. You need to essentially he develops an early form of the the scientific method from his studies of Aristotle and he's working on applying it. Shortly after him, you get somebody like uh, Roger Bacon, right. who is, this guy is almost too good to be true when you look at what he's doing. He's advocating an empirical approach to the world. He actually goes a step further and says, not only do we have to have direct observation of the natural world to understand it, but God's other book, which is scripture, yes. we need direct observation of that as well, hmm. which means that in Oxford, where he taught, the tradition came that in theology you studied the Bible first and then Peter Lombard's sentences. Yeah. Whereas in the University of Paris, they studied the sentences first and then went to the Bible. So you study your theology and then scripture at Paris. In Oxford, you study scripture first, then theology. Hmm. Because you need direct observation of the text, just like you need direct observation of the world. Bacon even argued in terms of that you should study the text in Greek and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And again, he's doing this 13th century. But right. I think part of this, the the, the value of this is the, is goes back to the, the the wedding of Jerusalem and Athens. If we just had Athens, that is, it's a Plato. I think we, we there would be a certain ultimately there is a certain disparagement of of the world. Right. Okay. Right. Right. In, but it, from in Jerusalem through the scripture tradition, you have an affirmation that the world is created by God, it's orderly, and it's good. 
Right. And right. so therefore, and therefore it can be an avenue of, of thinking God's thoughts after him, uh, but not, not to escape the world. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, to to you know reaffirm the goodness of, of this right. world. Right. right. Well, you know, uh, you're, you're thinking God's thoughts after him is a quote from Kepler, who was a Christian Platonist, mm-hmm. and he's he's one of the he's at the foundation of modern astronomy because of his Platonism, mm-hmm. and that's that's the irony here. It, it and there is a way in which classical Platonism leads to a disparagement of the physical world. So, for example, in the ancient world, superior people did not work. They did not produce anything. Instead, the inferiors were the ones who did all the work, who did all the production. The superior people contemplated beauty and things like this to to raise themselves up to higher levels, which amounted actually ultimately to an embrace of hedonism. Yeah, and, but, and also a, a, a kind of a strange, in a strange way, a servile dependency upon all those servants, right. mm-hmm. which is something Hegel brings out. And, and, and right. anyway, <laughs> yeah. Whereas when you take Platonic ideas and reframe them in Christian terms, affirming the goodness of the physical world and things like that, but at the same time recognizing that the meaning and the the reality of the physical world is anchored into something yes. that is non-physical that is deeper that is eternal that right. is unchanging that it, this is what gives the world significance mm-hmm. and further it's what gives the early modern scientists the people in the scientific revolution it's what gave them their motivation to do science right. the 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 reason they wanted to do science wasn't because they wanted to master the world or something like yeah, that that comes later yeah. that become that comes later it that it, it's because they wanted to understand the mind of god better Right. And the physical world is one means of doing that. By studying the physical world, you can you can get access to to aspects of the mind of God that we don't have through Scripture. Right. right. And so this is embraced as a theological pursuit because of of the anchoring of all of this in a Platonic vision of reality. Yeah. There there are a couple of things that uh, occur to me. I I think one of the things that that was instrumental in my re-embrace of Christian Platonism was the, the problem of value, uh, mm-hmm. axiology. You know, what, how, how, how do we affirm the value of, of things, and how do yes. we sort of distinguish things as being, you know, more and less valuable? So, uh, you know, we can ground it in our preferences. You just just say that's what I'm into, or proximity. You know, I value my wife over you know other women or whatever. Uh, but you know, what if my moods change? What if, what if, what if, you know, I'm, I'm unstable, and you know, I, I decide tomorrow, you know, I, I, I like that woman better or whatever. And what what's good? What what's going to keep me faithful in a situation like that? If if it, if the law isn't reinforcing my fidelity, which it isn't anymore, you know, or even social norms, there has to be some sense in which. Uh, my relationship to my wife reflects a higher reality and not merely my desires, my whims, and the conventions of our society, all that kind of stuff. So now you can say, well, you know, God's word serves that. Well, yes, but is God's word, when we, when we speak about God's word, um, are, we, are we saying that it is uh, sort of a 
restricted to, uh, and I mean this in the most literal sense, the Bible. Mm, in other words, that. did God's word not exist before the Bible? <laughs> we do know that there was a time before the Bible. Right. In fact, the Bible tells us about a time before the Bible. <laughs> you know, you go back to Genesis, there are all sorts of things going on before the Bible. So, the Bible, I, I have a, as anyone who knows me knows, I, I, re, I have a tremendous uh, regard and respect and, and love for the scriptures. But uh, the Word of God uh, precedes the scriptures. And so if we're talking about that, then how do we get access to that? Right. And, and I'll take a step further. If you are a sort of a solo scriptura person. Right, right. Okay. I have seen people, both people that I know and people over the centuries, who can make very convincing cases from scripture about all kinds of crazy things oh, that yeah. are just fundamentally <laughs> wrong. Right, right. Um, you know, there, in, in the kingdom of heaven there will be no marrying or giving in marriage. Well, that means we shouldn't marry in this world. That's right. Because the kingdom of heaven has come with the coming of Christ and with the inauguration of, of the church. Right. You know, I mean, you, you, you can get all kinds of things like that that come out of it. What you need to understand is that the scripture, I, and I, I, have, I have a very, very high view of scripture. I don't think anybody, I mean, I can sign the Chicago Statement, you know, the whole sure, nine yards sure. here. But the fact is that things aren't true because they're in Scripture. They're in Scripture because they're true. That's exactly the point, yes. And there are, the Scripture is pointing to realities that go beyond itself. Right. Someday, someday we're not going to need our Bibles. Mm. Right? Right. <laughs> So you, you got something I know you want yeah, to say there, well, right? Well, if if all I mean if, if we're talking about the one and the many, if 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 everything is simply matter in motion, random matter in motion, uh, then there is there is when it comes down to it, no value or meaning or purpose to anything. Right. Okay. But what what the the biblical worldview and the Platonist worldview says? No, wait a minute. There there is. There is there is significance and purpose in that telos to to all to all things, and therefore um, uh, and and it's it precedes the Bible though it's confirmed by it. Yeah. I mean in the, in the beginning God uh, makes uh, male and right. male and fe makes the male and female in his, in his image. Right. He creates uh, the animals and so forth after their kinds. Mm -hmm. There is. And the whole thing is the whole, you know, scheme of the day is leading up to something that's very good. There's a purpose to all things. So this is a whole different, different, different view. <laughs> that's right. And, that's right. and fundamentally, right. unless you have a very strong place for the non-physical world, you have no no place for meaning. Right. Because meaning, value, purpose, all of those kinds of things are grounded in things that are not physical right. realities. There's only, there's only utility for my, you know, derivative, specific purpose that I have concocted right now. Yeah. Right. And, and, that, and that's where most of our secular friends are. That's exactly where they mm -hmm. are. And that's why they find themselves completely unable to sort of... They know that a lot of things that are happening in our society are absurd. Uh, but they don't know how to argue for yeah. it. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that when you have a purpose for something, when there is a givenness to the created world, then that means there are certain things that I can and cannot do. 
-hmm. with that that are appropriate right. to its purpose. Right. And so if you, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, strip away the spiritual realm entirely, yes, there's there's a loss of meaning, but for some people that's, hey, that's that's a carte blanche to do whatever, to, to create or recreate without any without any, any restrictions, without anybody being able to say, oh no, that's not right. Right, yeah. right. Now within Islam, they ran up against this this question of how do we relate the Quran to this idea that you've just presented, Christian Platonism. There was a there was an Islamic version. They had more affinity for Aristotle, right. but um, there was a recoiling from that. So within within Islam, there's a kind of Islam, you know, sort of Islamic version of nominalism. And I'm not a a scholar, but I understand the sort of the gist of the, of the argument. And in a way, you could say they, they were ahead of us in a bad way in this mm -hmm. sense. And that's why we have Al-Qaeda today and all this Islamic fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. what they, what they, were, they were unwilling to accept uh, ideas as being, having some sense, some sense of a, or having a place. Uh, instead, what they, they wanted to do is to take the Quran and eternalize it. Mm -hmm. So they have the eternal Quran that functions mm -hmm. uh, in the way that uh, you know Platonic thought would describe the ideals as functioning, or as Augustine would describe as the mind of God and his ideas functioning. Uh, so that gets them away from this, this kind of third thing, this tertium quid, but it substitutes another third thing, the Quran. So that makes the Quran something that you're not allowed to think about critically. It makes the world a place you're not allowed to think about critically. Right. And, and <laughs> fundamentally within Islam, the idea within traditional Orthodox Islam, and again, Islam is incredibly broad. Sure, there sure. are modernist versions, there are all kinds right, of things out right. there. But in classical, con traditional Islam, Allah directly controls everything that happens. Right. So there isn't, I mean, there, human beings have free will. Um, and jinn have free will, but nothing else does. But even in our free will, Allah directly controls. Yes. And the key word here is directly. Yes. Whereas in Christianity, no yeah, within Christianity, there, through Aristotle and others, we get the idea of secondary causation and things like right. that. Which, by the way, is in the Westminster Confession. Mm -hmm. So if anybody has any problems from a reform perspective, you just said, just look at the confession. Yeah. But, but in <laughs> Islam, th th this shows up in some interesting ways. I, I, I don't think this has actually come up in the podcast, and I find it difficult to believe that it hasn't yet. But I'm really, really good at plague. Plague? Plague. That, that's one of your the, specialties. The, the, the Black Death. I, 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 I am... I am I, the, 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 we need to do a show on the Black Death. You know, another show we need to do, Glenn, is, is you on the Crusades, vindicating the Crusades. We're okay. going to do that oh, one. Yes. Okay, well, yes. yeah, the, the, we'll, we'll queue them up. Um, but d during, the, during the Black Death, 14th century, in Europe, the Pope asked the theology faculty at the University of Paris to explain what's going on with the plague. You know, is this a divine judgment? Is this an act of God? And now, it might seem strange going to a theology faculty, but again, remember, in sure. this world, science is theology. Right, right, natural, because natural science. It's uh, called theology. natural theology right. because Studying the natural world reveals the mind of God. And what the, the theology faculty at Paris said was, well, yeah, kind of, 
because God's responsible for everything. He created the universe, created everything in it. Nothing happens apart from his will. But that doesn't mean that God is doing this directly. This isn't a direct act of God. It is, in fact, a consequence of things that God set in motion to the universe that happen to converge at this point in time. Now, in their case, they were operating out of ideas coming out of Greek medicine. So they said that it was a conjunction of astrological bodies. Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars were in conjunction, and for reasons which I'm not going to explain, this caused the poisonous vapor to rise from the Earth, and that's what is causing plague. This, by the way, led to an enormous improvement in public sanitation in Europe because they wanted to get rid of bad smells, mm-hmm. and it ultimately leads you to the plague doctor outfits and things like that that you mm-hmm. may have seen. Now. now This is a fanciful explanation. We'd reject it completely. It sounds kind of superstitious and so on. But what's important about it is they were looking for natural causation. Yes, right. If you go to the Islamic world, you will find that the Quran says that when plague comes, it is sent by Allah, and he alone determines who gets sick and who stays well, who lives and who dies. Right. There were Muslim physicians in Spain. I forgot the guy's name, one guy in particular who was trying to find ways of preventing and treating plague. Hmm. He was arrested for apostasy because he was trying to thwart the will of Allah. And in fact, he was imprisoned. A mob broke into the prison and lynched him for un-Islamic activities, not just because of plague, but because of some other things. So here you have this idea of the direct causation from Allah leading to, frankly, a zero, I mean, it it was literally, it could cost you your life to try to find some way of dealing with plague. It did in this guy's case. Whereas in Europe... It has a way of discouraging science. Yeah, it definitely (laughs) has a a way of discouraging science. Now, there were people who sort of worked around it. So you get get guys who were writing treatises that were saying, well, before we got the glorious Quran, the Arabs believed in contagion, and the way they would have dealt with plague was this. But, of course, we know better. Well, read between right, the lines. Right, right, but, right. but in Europe, they don't have to play those games because they've got this broader idea that, yes, God is behind everything that happens, but it works through other causations, and studying the natural world is worth doing right. to under I mean in, in Islam so the idea of, in Islam the idea of natural law is apostasy because exactly. it limits Allah's freedom. Okay. In Europe it isn't because okay. it's revealing the mind of a, God. You know, a brick uh, you know falls off uh, a building at a certain rate of speed regularly. Well, we would say it's because of a certain law, you know, of physics. Uh, in Islam it would be this because Allah Willed it, willed it exactly yeah. that way. Now he yeah. happened to have a pattern of it. He, he's he's doing this, but he could change it at any time. That's, it, that's it's right. a direct thing that he was. Right. That's a good source for that. Is you, you probably know this, uh, you guys. Um, but the uh, the reliance of the traveler is a is is a medieval uh, uh, Islamic textbook, and about. 95% of his law, theology is like a fifth of it. Yeah, very it's, small. It's, yeah, it's but but it's their, very their... interesting where he says it, Allah is absolutely, he's in charge of every, every, everything that happens, including sins. Right. I, I read a book here not too long ago, and I, and I don't remember the name of the author. I'll look it up in a second. But it's entitled uh, The Closing of the Muslim Mind. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, treating essentially this, this turn, you know, the, the, the Muslim world faced the question that the early church faced, which is, you know, of course, in their, their, in their approach is what does uh, Athens have to do with Mecca, I guess, you could put it the way you could right. put it. For us, it would be what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem. They came up with a different solution. But the early 
it was an early party, or young, sort of in the first two, three hundred years uh, within Islam, that was uh, the sort of the reason party. Yeah. Other chain, other rise, all of those guys. Right, right. Yeah. And that was really the golden age. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so, like, when modern historians look back at you know Islam and say, "Well, look at this," they were so much so much further ahead of the rest, you know, of the West, of, particularly in, of Europe in these respects. They're looking at that. Right. They're not looking at what followed, which was the rise of the fundamentalists, with right. what we would call the fundamentalists with, with Islam, which would sort of look at the way the, the world at the way you would just described, Ray. Right. Yeah, and I think when you look at the early history of Islam versus the early history of Christianity, I think the sort of triumphalism you get in Islam because of the incredible rapidity of their conquests yes. is going to be a thing that's going to contribute to the rise of fundamentalism as being sort of mainstream, at least for a long time, within the Islamic world. Whereas in Christianity, you don't have that same dynamic because for 300 years, it was right. a persecuted minority church. Right. Right. And right. That, that's another subject, but that's... that. That contributed to the whole Christian notion of the relationship between church and state. Absolutely, yeah. where in his Islam there was it was all yeah, one, right. and you know right. they didn't have 300, three, 300 years of, of being essentially mm -hmm. oppressed in a minority. Sure. Yeah. By the way, the name of the, the of the author of that book, the closing of the Muslim mind, is Robert R. Riley. Robert R. Riley, mm -hmm. and uh, anyway, it's available on Amazon. And let me see if I can find the publisher. I'm looking at my uh, my handy dandy phone right now to see if I can give you that information. Um, it's a, a ISI, Intercollegiate Studies mm -hmm. Institute. Okay. Now, to um, to go from Islam back to Christianity, right. the handy way of doing that is via nominalism. Sure. Um, nominalism is a medieval intellectual movement that, frankly, doesn't have a massive amount of impact long-term in its historical form, although it ends up being revived later uh, from a different direction. Um, nominalism, the, the, the kind of classical definition of nominalism is that the nominalists argued that things were not similar, they had similarities. Right, right. Okay. So, now what does that mean? It sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, but what it means is that there is no canine nature. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of individual dogs, like pugs, for example, <laughs> that are similar to each other. Right. So they have similarities, but they are not similar in the sense that they don't have a common nature. Right. So we're just making, we're, we're making observations, not even in an Aristotelian sense, mm -hmm. because Aristotle would say that there is a nature. Right. But the nominalists would say that this is just a, a convention. This is a name alone, hence the word nominal. Is it a construction of the mind? Is it, is it... Um, yeah, well, we, we, yeah, basically that's what it come down to. Human beings, you know, will look at all these individual things and say, oh, these things have a bunch of similarities. Let's call them all dogs. Right. Now, so, you know, and then we make the mistake then of thinking that there is this sort of universal of dog or canine nature or something like that when there really isn't there are just a whole bunch of individual dogs out there yeah now where this goes eventually is that you know if you're going to do justice i don't even know how you describe justice in a nominal sort of metaphys nominalist metaphysic but if you're going to do justice to everything everything has its own it must have its own name every individual leaf 
every individual atom, whatever it is, because because whenever you classify, you're doing something that's uh, you know unfair or you're you're you're, you're, vi you're, you're violating its its in its integrity as a, a particular. Yeah, that would be that would be sort of the postmodern take on nominalism. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, what the nominalist would say is that these classifications we use are intellectual conveniences. Right, right. Well, and but, but, they wouldn't object to it on that ground, but they would argue fundamentally that, they're, that these things don't exist. So in a lot of ways, it's the antithesis of Platonism. Sure. Realism, in the, in the sense that I used it before, idealist versus realist, the realist still acknowledges the reality, albeit the secondary reality of the universal. The nominalist ultimately rejects it except as a linguistic convention. Mm -hmm. But that, that gets us to the point, which is sort of the entree to postmodernism, because right. all that exists is language. In other words, if we can manipulate language, we can manipulate reality. Sure. Yeah, now nominalism was big among the Franciscans in the late Middle Ages, but it doesn't have, I mean, it really doesn't shape Catholic thought. That, it, that tends to go in a Thomistic direction, which is right. Dominicans. Um, and nominalism really, in a lot of ways, looks to me like it largely kind of fizzles by the 16th century. Luther was trained as a nominalist theologian. He adamantly rejects it. But it does start coming back in from a completely different direction, ironically enough, through the sciences. Right. It ends up coming back in from that direction. Mm -hmm. And that nominalist impulse um, of... Um, you know, rejecting common nature, rejecting any of those kinds of things, ultimately uh, arguing that all of this stuff is linguistics is at the root of postmodernism, but it also connects, I would argue, uh, back to Islam as well huh. in, in many ways. I mean, right. I'm not sure that, that Muslim scholars would... would. Yeah, I'll do the... Uh, let's see, do you have the Hideway IPA? I'll do that. I'll have another cider. I'm fine, thanks. Um, in any event, though, um, <laughs> the the Islamic um, the Islamic tendency to say that Allah directly controls everything right. that fundamentally goes not just to the idea of there being no laws of nature, but on a metaphysical level, it means each each individual entity is a unique entity. It's fundamentally right. a nominalist kind of approach. Right. I had a I had an intern years ago uh, who was a nominalist and. Um, the way I, I addressed the, his nominalism was actually through Hebrews. It was, a, it was kind of fascinating that that would be the, the sort of the, the attack that would be persuasive for him. And my, my point was that uh, you know the, the earthly tabernacle was a reflection of the heavenly tabernacle, which is you know clear in Hebrews. Um, and I just said, just carry that on. <laughs> and every, in, in some sense, you can. In fact, you can't read C.S. Lewis and know what he's up to and why his fiction has the power it has, unless you're a realist in the sense that we're talking about now, uh, Platonism, right. Christian, Christian Platonism. Realist as opposed to nominalist. Right, right. Because, uh, and, and everything that Lewis is about is fighting nominalism, mm. it seems to me. Right. Particularly as it expresses itself as scientism, but I think he anticipates postmodernism. Oh yeah, he, he's, he had a remarkable tendency to recognize core worldview ideas that were becoming embedded in culture and understanding that 
when an idea becomes embedded in culture, it doesn't necessarily produce its logical fruit right away. It takes time for it to mature. Yeah, yeah. But when it does, it will inevitably lead to its logical conclusions. And so he could see in the 1940s things that are only happening now. Right, right. As, as part of Lewis's continuing relevance yes. and ongoing relevance. Yeah. I think he was far sharper than we, we, mm. we appreciate. I think, I think he was just simply unfashionable. That I, I think that the reason why he had, didn't have greater greater uh, salience is just that. He just was unfashionable. He was willing to refer to himself as a dinosaur and champion old ideas. Well, you know, the other thing, this is a point that you made in an earlier podcast. One of the reasons why Lewis is... Everybody wants to be the next C.S. Lewis. <laughs> everybody wants to be the next J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> they all want to do these kinds of things. But the reason why those two guys have the power that they do is because they are so deeply rooted in old ideas. They understand, they get this stuff in a profound way, and they think about Thanks. the world in radically different ways than we do. Mm -hmm. And the net result is, in our essentially nominalist world, people cannot develop worlds with the richness and depth and right. philosophical sophistication that underlie Lewis and Tolkien. It's because of it's because of their roots in the medieval world yeah, and their deep true. understanding, deep appreciation of a reality that goes beyond the mere physical right. that gives their writing its power. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to be uh, the new Tolkien, but nobody wants to invent elven languages. <laughs> that takes yeah, some time. That's the other side of it. That's the work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, doing it well, it takes a lot of work. I'm working on my second book in my, my young adult series right now, and uh, for those of you who are out there who are waiting for it, uh, Glenn's wife threatened me, so I must get it done. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what did she say again that you told me the other day? Um, she said, tell him to stop making people mad and just get down and write. He needs to get his priorities straight. <laughs> I thought she said something about toxic well, matriarchy. Well, yeah, she said, if she said basically, if he doesn't, I'll show him toxic matriarchy. <laughs> so, so, Lynn, I'm working on it. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> but, but, you know, fiction does take a lot of work, particularly if you're interested in doing what they were doing, which is writing deeply. You know, so... You know, so, like, I'm reading Paralanda right now, maybe for the third or fourth time, and it's rich every time, you know, and I'm seeing, I see stuff that I didn't see before every time. I can't say that for a lot of stuff. And, um, and it's because of this very point, they're being informed by so much and, and everything. I think I, I heard, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the scholar. He used to teach at Wheaton. I think he's down at Houston Baptist now. But anyway, he wrote uh, The Narnian. The name escapes. Alan Jacobs. Jacobs, that's right, Jacobs. So Jacobs said that everything that that Lewis read was in everything that Lewis wrote. Something to that effect. So that, you know, uh, no matter what it is, it's all there. And you, you, just, you just but you don't see it until you know to look for it. Right. But the marvelous thing about it is that you don't need to know it to enjoy it. Right. That's the beauty of it. But I think that even if you don't know it, you sense it. Yes, I think that's right. And that's the thing that, that kind of sets them apart. Yes. Um, and again, just coming back to, to some of the core ideas here, unless you have something like a platonic vision of the world, 
You cannot have depth, you cannot have meaning, you cannot have anything like that. And again, Platonism in its original form, he got a lot right, but he got an awful lot wrong. Sure. And and when you balance that to scripture, you can get a you you get, I think, a compelling vision of the world mm -hmm. when you do the balance correctly. Mm -hmm. You get a compelling vision of the world and one that corresponds much more with what we intuitively know about the world and the way it works. Right. This gets us back to Lagos. Exactly. Because, uh, you know, just the very observation that eventually things sort of logically work themselves out implies that, lo that reason is not sort of uh, confined to our heads, that there's something outside us that's at work, sort of carrying out the implications of particular ways of thinking and behaving and so forth. Anyway, this is a pretty good point to wrap things up. Um, so, Ray, do you have any final thoughts for us uh, that you want to share before we uh, Just that the, you know, the, the continuing value of Plato. We think there's a, there's a real value in the in interface between Plato and the, the biblical tradition. Yeah. Uh, you know, certain, certainly in certain places we, will, we would want to take a, take a rain check uh, on certain you know, implications like that, that, that this world is simply a world of, of shadows right. and the only, the only reality is, is elsewhere. No, we say ultimately this, this world is infused with meaning and reality and truth. And, uh, and so that's part of why the Christian hope is, is ultimately, it's not escaping the, the body. It's mm -hmm. not the soul, you know, escaping the world. It is resurrection. Yes. And, uh, and so... Uh, it's, it's kind of paradoxical that some of the people that I know who are dismissive of Plato are also dismissive of the body. I don't know, you know, it's mm, kind no, of a weird kind yeah. of thing yeah. to happen. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, the vision of heaven is dry ice and sheets. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's... What an appealing idea. <laughs> but that would be Gnosticism. Yeah. That is yeah, that, a that, kind of aberration. Not, right, right. Yeah. So they reject, they reject a, uh, a Platonism for a Gnosticism, right. which is a weird... Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have a... I have a friend who uh, grew up in a fundamentalist environment, and he said if he ever wrote an autobiography, he'd call it, I was a teenage Gnostic. <laughs> um, he ought yeah. to write it. He really should. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to uh, give a preview of coming attractions here okay. uh, as part of my wrap-up. One of the things that exists within the Platonic worldview is the idea that between God and man, or the one and humanity, there are other beings, there yes, are other intelligences, yes. there are other kinds of powers that stand between us and, well, God. Yeah. And these things make their appearances in scripture kind of regularly, they a do. lot more than we give them credit for. Right. So that's another aspect of this that we haven't been able to get into here, but as I is going to be coming up in a future podcast. So that's I true. just wanted to kind of toss that out. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support, and uh, we appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen to what we have to say. And we hope that it's helpful for you. Anyway, bye-bye. Uh, bye now. Bye.